1: Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your regular co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here this week with regular co-host, Pete Wall, and once again joining us, guest host, Paul Risker. Pete, I'll go to you first because I'm completely out of breath. How are uh, you?
0: I'm okay, man. Um, I'm breathing steady. Uh, yeah, uh, living in the middle of a busy time at the moment, uh, within the the wider frame of the global pandemic because uh, my wife and I are trying to move house and it's a little bit stressful, but house full of boxes, we're getting things going going we've got about two weeks to move day i would say from the point of recording today and so all being well in a couple of episodes time i'll be able to talk about how swimmingly it's all going how it's caused absolutely no stress or arguments and how uh we couldn't have hoped for anything better uh, how about you though man how are you doing paul having done your uh your breathless introduction to the yeah, show. Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm all right, to be honest. Yeah, second lockdown, uh, very exciting. I'm not going <laughs> to labour that point. I'm still working through, so I shouldn't really complain. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right, to be honest. And very excited to be joined by
2: Mr Paul Risker again. Paul, welcome back. How are you, sir? Yep, surviving the second lockdown. wasn't a great surprise, pretty much signposted. Thrilled to be back uh, with both of you to kind of talk films again. Um. But, yeah, no, kind of feel for Peter. Uh, let's face it, movie news is never fun. So um, I'm sure I'm going to be having a lot more fun in the next few weeks or so than he'll be having, and more time to watch films as well. So as I'm kind of sat there comfortably kind of with a nice hot cup of tea um, in front of a TV, I will spare a four for uh, Mr. And
0: hey, like jump forward a couple of weeks, guys, and with all being with all being well, this lockdown that we're talking about might actually be over in the UK. I mean we don't know this for sure at this point, touch wood and all, but first week of December is the time that we're due to be released into the wild again, is it not? It does look that way at the moment. We're, we shall
1: see, we shall see whether everything opens or not. Whether cinemas come back online, that's all we're really worried about, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um mm. is will cinemas will cinemas reopen again? Um can they reopen? But again, yeah. we're not gonna We've talked about that a lot, yeah. on this show. Because Paul,
0: Paul, as, as you are, as you are painfully well aware, I am edging ever closer to just caving to getting an OLED television because we're spending so much time at home that I'm just about to throw hundreds and hundreds of pounds in that direction. Well, so, you know,
1: if you, I, I know a good man to sell one to you, so um, yeah, you know, we'll leave it <laughs> at that. <laughs> um, we
0: will indeed, Pete. What have we got coming
1: up? What have we got coming up this week?
0: So for this week's show, it is a little bit different as things are you know, generally a bit different in this trademark troubled time, but we are going to include not a feature review this week. There wasn't something in particular that stood out that we were all going to wade in on. So instead, we've swapped that out for a top five, which is a move that we've made a number of times in the past. This week, we're going for a slightly strangely arrived at, I guess, top five in the form of Top five worst sequels, or perhaps most disappointing sequels, prompted Paul, I think by yourself. I'm talking to to Paul Anderson in this case. What was the reason for this top uh, well, five? Well, there's a film that might come into it later on that I was in the midst of watching.
1: Um uh, basically, well, th- this is a kind of spoiler, it is in my top five. I was sat there thinking, do you know what? I've never watched American Werewolf in Paris. I got about f- 20 minutes into American Werewolf in Paris and thought. Is there a worse sequel than this? Like literally, like a, a Stranger in a Cinema branded question mark appeared above <laughs> my head, and I thought, "Is there a worse sequel than this?" And I thought there might be, and thought, and immediately uh, during the film, I'll be honest, because it's that bad, I messaged Pete and said we're doing top five worst sequels, or maybe bottom five sequels. I don't, uh, but we're going with top five worst sequels. So, yeah, it was a it was a brain fart.
0: It was probably I, I did notes. It was it was prep work. <laughs> Yeah well that's I mean you you anyone listening to this show knows that we don't need very much we need one small seed to grow <laughs> a tree of kind of unwarranted uh, lengthy discussion and so that's what we're going to go for today top five worst or most disappointing sequels but before we get to that we do want to plug in a couple of the other regular sections of the show usually about this time we give you film news we'd be in the foyer and we'd be talking through what's going on in the world of film again I don't feel like there's a ton of stuff for us to get through. Unless anyone else wants to throw anything out, I think we can kind of jump over that section for this week, right? No, there's
1: nothing nothing hugely jumped out at me this week that I want to talk about, to be fair. So um, I'm all good. Mr. Risker, anything to, anything to no, add? No,
0: certainly
2: not. Unless uh, we want to just kind of go on and <laughs> on about they kind of locked in and cinemas closed and everything. No, no, no. No, no. we don't. Let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's like a, it's like a, what the Thick of It type move where the news is there's no news or the announcement is there's no announcement, right? Uh, In this case, yeah, you you guys listening to this know the situation that we're all in, the the world over, but in the UK also, of course, is where we're recording. And and perhaps it's the time just to jump straight onto something a bit more lively. So we have got, of course, Popcorn Movies for today, which is a bunch of reviews. I mean, all of us cooped up in our own homes have been watching endless films, series and so on. And we'll get into some of that there. And then we will also make time for a little coming attraction Section. we've got a couple of things we want to talk about that hopefully will put a smile on people's faces because they are going to be available at least uh vod wise in the next week or so so we'll get to that in due course but first of all i guess we go straight into popcorn movies unless i am mistaken. Uh, no
1: let's let's do it um paul risker as i don't need to refer you to as paul risker because you know you're talking to paul uh <laughs> the wit on this show uh paul as you're the guest um throw your first popcorn movie into the mix
2: well i've kind of i've i have actually reviewed this um American publication pop matters, uh, but Josephine Decker's uh, Shirley. It's it's an infuriating film. It's meant to be about Shirley Jackson, but the director has admitted that it's actually there's a lot of inaccuracies. It's fictionalized. It's actually based on a fictional novel, uh, and it's it's one of those strange things where and I said this actually when I reviewed it, um, it gets caught in the middle because it just won't make a choice. Either you've got to make it about the writer, where you kind of treat a life story with some respect, or you just have to kind of create a fictional character and use touches from Jackson's life, which can be subtle, maybe more noticeable, which just really pepper that kind of fictional character with some real flavour. And it's just the fact that they really don't make a choice. They kind of just walk that kind of line right there in the middle and it just compromises a film. And I'm seeing really positive reviews, but it just feels I don't like I I, I don't want to use this term, but it almost feels like this film is for rape of Shirley Jackson. It really feels like a great writer who's never received the recognition that she that she rightly deserves is still not going to kind of receive it because even if you don't know a lot about Shirley Jackson, when you watch the film, it just you can just tell that it's a lot of fantasy, it's a lot of kind of inaccuracy, and I just think she deserves better than what Josephine Decker has kind of delivered
0: here. Paul, can I ask? Um, sorry to jump in, uh, Paul. Josephine Decker's last one, Madeline's yeah. Madeline, was like really formally inventive and kind of creative with its use of uh, POV and stuff like that. Is there that stuff in this film? Does it have a, a sort of distinctive style to it, I guess?
2: I mean, there are some occasional nice uh, touches of, uh, with the aesthetic of dream and nightmare sequences but they're few and far between and it almost feels like there's a film there kind of crying to kind of break out but it just feels a little bit like it's been just abandoned it's incomplete it's what you see with quite a few films now if you go to film festivals it just feels like films are rushed out they're early drafts early versions there's a lack of kind of willing to you know, bleed and sweat for a film. It's just a race to get it out as soon as possible. And you see so many films where, you know, it's listen to the story, let the story talk to you. It will tell you what it needs, but it feels like a lot of storytellers now are not listening to their stories. Uh, Or at least that's how I feel.
0: Are you, uh, Paul, are you uh, uh, Elizabeth Moss acolyte or, or not? coming into this one because i think i haven't caught up with the film yet but i think a big sort of headline for me would be f- possibly Josephine Decker, but but certainly elizabeth moss and is this like a standout performance i've heard that floated around on online or is it something that perhaps uh, can't what well, it sounds like can't rescue the film from a sort of mediocrity in your eyes
2: well she produced the film so she's had a big hand in it um I find Moss interesting because I, I really do like her, but I think she's been let down a few times. I think she was miscasting the Invisible Man. I don't think, you know, that was a particularly good film for her to do because you know, she needed to be a lot more feminine. I think she need was, was that right? I think she needed to be a lot more feminine than maybe she actually was in that film. Um, and I'm also trying to think of a director, Jane Campion, did a series with her where... Top of a Lake, yeah. Top of a Lake, yeah. And again, another example of stories just laying her down. She's a very good actress, but it sometimes feels like she picks stories where there might be a good character there, but the story isn't there. And all, in the case of The Invisible Man, it just wasn't quite right for her. Like I say, it was that kind of feminine kind of aspect. It felt like she was a bit more kind of uh, gritty. And, And that's not what the film needed. It needed a greater vulnerability. And so I just feel like she's a really good actress, but she's in danger of not necessarily the characters laying her down, but the writers, the directors and the stories. And I just don't think she can rescue this film with this performance. But the problem is... So much of a real Shirley Jackson is missing who had a real sense of humour, was quite playful, like her children remember that. And there's this real nastiness that comes out that you're almost repelled by her. And the idea of actually reading her stories in moments in that film... You want you, there's no, no appeal, no drive to want to read her stories. You almost feel like this is a very cold, cruel person who you want to kind of, once the credits roll, you don't want anything more to do with her. But that's not the real Jackson. But then the film actually does have a lot more in terms of perhaps her life experiences, her experience in marriage, um, kind of very patriarchal society, um, a husband who's not faithful, uh, she's the main breadwinner but he kind of controls her in many ways and this kind of young couple who come to visit or who are invited by her husband to visit in a way you kind of see are they a younger version of jackson and her husband and are they heading in the same direction that they've ultimately kind of traveled so there are some really kind of you know, interesting things at play. But it just feels like Moss isn't given. But then again, she produced it, so it's a bit of a quandary because to what extent was she actually involved in it? And I would say quite a bit. So if her performance can't save this film, then there's a lot more responsibility, I think, for her to have to kind of answer to, unlike perhaps um, The Invisible Man or yep. the Top
0: of the Life. Well, this is some hot content because this thing has just come out, is that right? Or is just about to come out wide?
2: I think it's uh, coming out, uh, is it 30? Uh, it 30 I think that's what you mentioned period? earlier.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, end of the month. So not, not far off at all. So yeah, if any of that at least intrigued you, then check it out, get in touch and let us know what you thought of, of Shirley because I'm sure there'll be a... a, a a wide spectrum of opinions on on the film from the sounds of even just what you said today Paul Paul Anderson do you want to go next have you got something in the I'll
1: jump in next yeah the first thing I wanted to talk about today was a film I've been meaning to catch up with for many many years uh, and my adventures it was my adventures I was, I was sitting on my ass playing Red Dead Online has uh, made me uh, start to uh, sort of watch more westerns of late um, the first I wanted to catch up with was Sam Peckinpah's um, seminal The Wild Bunch from 1969 um I didn't I don't know what I expected I didn't what I didn't expect was for this film to be well I'll go back if anyone has played the first Red Dead Redemption video game which I imagine a lot of people it is basically a video game adaptation of the Wild Bunch movie the plot is almost identical there's train robberies there's treacherous Mexican generals there's a character called Dutch there's an outlaw there's an old outlaw tasked to find his old gang like it's it's Red Dead has kind of copied this or been heavily inspired by this and copied this wholesale. So it was great to watch uh, the influence on one of my favorite video games. It was also great to catch up with a with a classic Western I've never seen. Um, interestingly, I think when when I was a kid, my dad would never let me watch it because it was like it's too violent. It was banned when it came out. By today's standards, the use of blood squibs is nothing, but it is. It did set the tone. I think it was one of the first films to you to show exit wounds uh, on screen. So there is at the time it was very very controversial, and the body count. Uh, what I will say by today's standards, the body count is still absolutely ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. There's some great set pieces here. There's a superb train robbery. There's an awesome kind of battle in a in a Mex, in a Mexican Federale's Fort or um, Federale's fought towards the end. Um, the cast are great, you've got um, William Holden, Ernest Borgin, Robert Ryan, um, yeah you've got an incredible cast here, the set piece is superb Yeah, thoroughly enjoyable western um, A lot more com- with a lot more commercial sensibilities than I thought it would have to be honest, there was a lot more action in this than I was anticipating uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing but that's to say it wasn't quite the film I expected
0: uh, but not in a bad way, so yeah that's the wild bunch. Nice, it, not one I've caught up with, to be honest I think it's a bit of a blind spot for me, it, westerns in general like I, I've certainly watched a number but it's never been like a go to genre and and not unlike yourself Paul I think the influence of something like Red Dead is the sort of thing that pushes me over I mean uh, what what yeah. was the um when Red Dead 1 came out what was the series that was um really popular at the time western series that was on like HBO Oh um Deadwood, Deadwood. yeah I started watching Deadwood Deadwood's off great, yeah. the back of <laughs> yeah, Red yeah. Dead 1 so I totally get that yeah. that vibe <laughs> Um, as I I guess I'm prone to doing on the show I'm going to take a total left turn and review something completely different Um, the first one on my list this week is a documentary that I really compel people to check out it's available on Prime Video right now um, and it comes in at a scant 1 hour and 21 minutes this one is called Time I don't know have you guys been aware of this? No, I'm not, I've not even heard of this, to be honest. So, so I have to thank uh, the Telegraph critic, Tim Roby because um, there was a thing where he had thrown out at the start of lockdown 2, Are we going into this lockdown? It's going to be horrible. So I'm going to do my bit and I'm going to recommend a documentary a day. That was just his, his like Twitter idea. And the, I think it was the first recommendation as I was following the thread was time. And it is this film that tells the story of a man who is incarcerated, a a black American man, um, who is incarcerated for a crime that he did. Um, He was involved in an armed robbery. He was driven to the location by his then young wife. And she was going to act as the sort of lookout getaway driver. Things go south and he ends up uh, locked up and facing, I believe they say in this documentary, for that attempted armed robbery, he got 60 years without the possibility of parole. So when he goes to jail, he's maybe 26, 27, and as a couple, they've been married just a few years, and they will next see each other, according to that schedule, when he is a man in his 80s, if he doesn't perish before that time. And it's a film that... is angry and rightfully about the injustices of the penal system in the United States and the disproportionate penalties that people receive for crimes that should be punished, but crimes that are punished to an extent far greater than what they deserve. And then it's also this film about a one-woman campaign, really, to have people listen to her story and have people pay attention to injustice and have people think about what, if it doesn't sound so grand of an idea what time means when you think of someone going to prison for 60 years that's the kind of thing that you know we throw around watching sort of true crime documentaries and stuff these days but the the sheer gravity of that amount of time when seen in here a sort of montage of shots through the life of a growing family, the young children, the, the woman is pregnant when her husband goes to jail, but the young family growing up into uh, men and young women and the effect and knock-on effect that this has the domino effect i suppose of someone being incarcerated what that does to so many other people all of this stuff is sort of pushed into just as i say an hour and 20 minutes it's a really emotional watch i think Um, it's a powerful watch and it's a real achievement within the frame of time that they had to tell the story so i highly recommend it it's called time it's on amazon prime video right now Uh, paul risco what's next for you
2: yeah. I'll lighten the uh, mood a little bit. Um, <laughs> a film with uh, a film which is available on iPlayer, so it's readily accessible. Uh, Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys, seen it more times than I can remember. Never grow tired of it. Uh, wonderful performances from Francis McDormand, Michael Douglas, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Toby Maguire. Rip Torn turns up. Uh, kind of announcing himself on stage. I am a writer. It, if you kind of, if you're a writer or you like stories about writers, this really is a film that you need to have seen. It's based on a the book by Michael Chabon, uh, if I pronounced that right, which I may not have. Um, it 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 is just a timeless film. I just think it's one of those films you come across there. It doesn't matter how long it's been since you've seen it. It still has some charm. It has uh, a certain magic. It's almost one of those stories where you just would love to be able to jump into that world and spend time with those characters. You would almost like to be able to have those kinds of conversations. And it's it's a story which makes you feel you know, extremely dull or realities just not as good as what we see on screen um it's just like as i say it's just a a film of charm uh, and it's just timeless and it's it's readily available and if you haven't seen it i haven't seen it for
1: years i'm gonna jump back in i think because it's been a long time since i watched it i remember being really quite taken by it when i first watched it but i must have been I mean, I've got—I must have been early twenties when I first watched that film. So um, that's a while ago, listeners. For anyone interested, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's um, yeah something I definitely need to uh, definitely need to jump back into. So um, thanks for thanks for pointing that one out, uh, Pete. Over to you, I think. Or I think it it's yours, man. It's me, isn't it? It's me. Uh, right. So the next one I wanted to talk about today was—I'm um, gonna go with. His house next, which is a Netflix film from what I believe is a featured debut from a director called Remy Weeks, also written by co-written by Remy Weeks as well. Um, and I'm going to thank IMDb for the synopsis here. A refugee couple makes a harrowing escape from war-torn South Sudan, but then they struggle they struggle to adjust to their new life in an English town that has an evil lurking beneath the surface. To be honest that's a terrible synopsis and I wish I hadn't used it now. Um, essentially this is a horror film, a British set horror film about two asylum seekers who are rehomed in a frankly a shithole house um, in, uh, on, a, on a sort of nameless housing estate um, on the outskirts of London. Um, it's a, a very very, for the most part, very very effective horror film with some really strong performances um, from um, from Soap Disru and Musaku, so apologies if I've butchered your names there. I more than likely have, um, but it is yeah, it's a really really effective horror film for a debut. I'm, I'm, it's, it's impressively accomplished. Um, again, it's kind of like we've seen a lot of the um, we've seen a lot of horror films recently that tend to be look like they're about one thing and they're actually about grief. It does kind of tread on, on that that kind of ground again, which. I wouldn't say I'm I'm not sick of seeing it would be nice to move things away from that now we've had a lot of We've had a lot of films like that recently, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to look at. Um, But this has a twist in its tail that you don't see coming, which I thought was really quite effective. Um, It's very atmospheric from start to finish. It looks great, sounds great, um, and is a really, really promising debut, I think, from the director. So um, that's out now on Netflix. Seems to have disappeared under the radar. It's one of these that I don't think Netflix even gave a massive push to, to be honest. So, um, yeah, it's only come out the 30th of October it came out, so just in time for Halloween. Uh, but yeah definitely check it out it's well worth a watch it's um yeah it's nice to see a film told from a slightly different perspective as well for sure so yeah it's a a promising debut definitely yeah Uh, Pete it's it's
0: on my list incidentally just to link these things together yeah Yeah, it's 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 on my list and it's it's one that interested me because um of that sort of trailer function that you've got on Netflix with upcoming stuff and it just like it looked like as you've sort of explained an interesting angle or approach at at the material so I, I will get to it for sure Um, And I have to now because I've said it on this, so I can't get out of it. Uh, So next for me is one that you guys may well have seen. I'd be interested to know what you think. Um, This one is from the director, Yi Chang Dong, um, Burning. Have either of you seen Burning? Have opinions on it? it's great. i
2: am still yet to
0: see. Okay, well, I'll keep this brief and then like I want to know what you think about it, I guess, Paul. Um, So... This guy Yi Chang Dong is a guy who I was aware of because of um, something. Actually, Paul, it's funny. I have not brought up <laughs> before. I lived for a little while in uh, in South Korea. What? Actually. Uh, Yeah, and so there there was a little film in 99, I think, uh, called Peppermint Candy, which I saw when I was over in South Korea. I wasn't there in 99, by the way, guys, because I am very youthful. But um, following that, there was another one, Poetry, from Chang Dong, which I liked quite a bit. So my anticipation for this was relatively high. There have been films that I haven't seen in in between times. Uh, However, this film was distributed, I guess, in 2018, perhaps. And so it's been a while for me getting round to it. And I, I finally have and yeah it's a real um a real a really fascinating i think look at a city that i have a lot of affection for and I say a look at a city it's not so localized as to be uh, restrictive i guess in its appeal or reach but it tells this story about a young guy who's seemingly a bit listless and a bit directionless he wants to be an author Uh, Yi chang dong himself was an author before he turned to film in fact he didn't become a film director till he was into his 40s um so it's really like a later life i guess a change of direction but the central character here is i think in his early 20s he's looking to write a novel but he doesn't really know what to write about and at the time his father is being tried for uh, violent crime but I think it's like an aggravated assault or something like that he's he's going through a court case for that and this guy doesn't have so much going for him until he meets uh, a young woman who is working as a promo girl which is a very common sight on the streets of Seoul Uh, and they form a kind of bond and when getting to know each other or so he thinks getting to know each other she says don't you remember me? I'm a girl that you were at high school with. You only spoke to me once and you told me that I was really very ugly. And uh, from that point, we kind of dig into how this relationship's going to develop and what's going on exactly when that girl disappears into... Who knows where, but on the scene before the disappearance has come a kind of nouveau riche Korean guy, a bit older than our central character, who's described by the central character as a great Gatsby type. He says there's a lot of them in Korea. They've got a lot of money and nobody knows where it's come from, which is something that kind of very much does resonate with even the the scene there 10 years ago where, when I was there, I suppose. And um. So it's a kind of mystery film, it's a kind of social examination, it explodes in certain ways that I won't go into towards the end in in perhaps quite shocking ways. How did this strike you Paul? Because you said it was really good, but do you have like a a particular set of memories about the movie? I I remember it. It i say it's really good i did think it was really
1: good i'm struggling to recall a lot of what happened i get the i remember the central premise now for sure i remember it certainly looking beautiful um i can imagine it felt it felt like very much like a love letter to to south korea for sure um in terms of the way it was shot i remember the central performance uh, i've completely forgotten the actor's name now um the guy that was in the walking dead which i mean he, he probably is already sick of um uh, I've completely forgotten his name though I could look it up on the Stephen young yeah Stephen young right. I thought was great in this and I yeah I like the fact it kind of kept you guessing um, as to as you say Pete like it takes a lot of twists and turns in some way in some aspects it's this film and in other aspects it's another film so no I as I, I remember liking it I' remember possibly thinking it was slightly on the long side don't think it quite justified its two and a half hour running time if I remember rightly but I did I did enjoy it for sure
0: yeah and just to be clear Steven Yun is like the slimy moneyed nouveau riche yeah. shit bag in it as opposed to the the guy who's on the yeah, cover sorry, art yeah. um I knew is that that guy but yeah I, I thought it was really interesting I have I have feelings about the way that the film ended but I can't really talk about them too much without spoiling it um but I do think as a sort of for, for those people who are really kind of holding up and I think there's a lot of people holding up Parasite as like this great uh, examination and dissection of kind of uh social mores and 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 inequality and sort of socio-economic divide in asia but also in the wider world i would say make this an automatic choice for a for a watch sometime soon yeah definitely anyway. i would agree with that um paul risker i think you're up next
2: yep so um i gave a, doc- a documentary ago uh one i've been trying to see for a while i finally got around to watching it uh the world versus bobby fisher uh, american uh, chess grandmaster, world champion. Um, it kind of came off the back of watching uh Magnus, about Magnus Carlsen, uh, Norwegian uh, chess grandmaster, and I think he's still current world chess champion i believe he's looking at us Um, yes he definitely is magnus carlson magnus
0: carlson by the way was wasn't he also fantasy football champion in a a season the official premier league fantasy football i'm pretty sure was won by magnus carlson chess grandmaster look it up i might be wrong
2: well (laughs) one of the things that kind of pushed me to i I'd almost forgotten about the documentary, actually, of uh, Bobby Fischer. And I remember seeing Magnus Carlsen saying if he could pick one person to play, it would be Bobby Bobby Fischer. And I brought back the documentary to mind and I finally kind of made a concerted effort to track it down. It is utterly compelling. Um, I mean, it's just the kind of dissection of genius... And how somebody can be so great at something, but they are so disconnected from the world around them uh, they're so fractured, and we would we hold we can hold somebody up and be amazed by their abilities, but in so many other ways, we are able to function more effectively than they can it's just one of those kind of great documentaries about human nature, the human condition. Uh, complicated it is and how actually sometimes the cost of genius uh, the effort that he actually takes and in bobby fisher's case how much he would have to practice how much he devoted to chess but it's also the way they peel away to kind of find the life experiences that have shaped him and it's such a it's such a sad story but at the same time, it's just so compelling that you almost, I think it's what these, what these character studies do is, they almost get you to kind of make excuses for flaws because a person becomes so fascinating that you almost want to excuse any kind of questionable action or any kind of character flaw. And I think that's what, I think that's what the documentary does so well, but it's definitely tragic, but at the same time, it leaves you in awe of this larger-than-life character. Um, And I'd definitely say Watchers a double with mm. Magnus, because I think Magnus is such a different personality and everything about him is so different. And the idea that he would love to play Bobby Fischer, to see those two sat opposite the table t- uh. On different sides of a board would be a fascinating sight. And
0: and for all of the Queen's Gambit converts to the game of chess, <laughs> yes. I guess this is the the funnel <laughs> through which to push them. And I mean anybody who, who watches the Queen's Gambit and thinks that Anya Taylor Joy's central character is somewhat troubled, yeah, Bobby Fisher's got something to say about that, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's it just i remember talking with some publicists at the london film festival and it was a year magnus was playing there and they were representing another film and the director of one of the films they were looking after he actually goes to chess tournaments and they were saying to his wife do you go with him and she was like oh god no and they were saying it's like why would it to them it was like but what happens what's there to see and what these documentaries do is almost... I'm trying to think how to phrase it. But they almost find the kind of humanity within the game. Is that the best way of putting it? They actually find a way to look at it and find the engagement with it. Because as, as outsiders looking at it, it can be a very kind of slow, monotonous game. But if you actually understand the personalities involved... Suddenly becomes a lot more engaging, and that's what these kind of documentaries do. Whether that would translate to the point that you could actually go to a chess tournament and actually watch it, because I think you need to almost understand the game, and that's another thing. Course,
1: and that's an- yeah. I'm not sold on it I enjoy playing it I'm not sold on the idea of yeah. this but yeah. as and, and let's sport, just curious. throw into
0: the perhaps trifecta of chess based documentaries Kasparov versus The Machine because uh, that that one's also really good so you know people will have their, their work cut out if they want to keep up with our list of chess based recommendations this week but
2: yeah they should definitely be seeking out some chess based
0: documentaries yeah. we'll do a top five at some point I will I'm going uh, to Paul, Paul Anderson yeah. what have you got
1: uh, the next up for me is a film called Hush, which is an early effort from Mike Flanagan, who people will know from um, the Haunting of House, the Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, um, the Doctor Sleep, the Shining, the belated Shining sequel, uh, Oculus. Uh, I'm quite a big fan of uh, Mike Flanagan, to be honest, and reinforced by this, thought this was. Fucking excellent, I'll be perfectly honest. There's an astute review for you. Um, an hour and 22 minutes of just, it's it's low budget, single location filmmaking at its absolute best, I think. Um, it ratchets up tension from the first minute all the way through to the final minutes. Um, it doesn't waste any time, it's a taut, well executed um, horror thriller. Um, the premise is basically there's a deaf and mute writer who lives in the woods. Um, her, friend comes to, her friend comes to visit her, they have a brief conversation, her friend leaves and then shortly afterwards uh, a guy transpires she's been stalked by a masked man uh, in the woods who t- decides to toy with her um, and ultimately is trying to kill her um so yeah so, so it's a it's a well-done premise a well-worn premise but i think the addition of a deaf character to this really does make a difference um there, there's some really creative uses there's some really creative uses of sound design there's some really interesting they use it in a really interesting way um and the film is just it's just a tight atmospheric atmospheric horror film uh, just a really really strong genre piece and one that i had a, had, a, had a great time with so i would highly recommend anyone who hasn't caught up with hush yet i found it on netflix i think uh, I imagine Mike. I would hope Mike Flanagan's Netflix deal means all of his films are on there because he seems to just be working for Netflix at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, it's a yeah, it's a really really strong genre piece. And if you haven't caught up with Hush from 2016, then uh, do so
0: yeah man i'd go as far as to say can't we have flan house instead of Blumhouse house <laughs> as our big you know factory production of projects because even like a bad mike flanagan movie is still pretty good i would say like reason there's there's always like something in there that that gets gets me on the hook i think so yeah i agree nice pete what have you got next Talk about Talking about being on the hook, uh, let's go under the, uh, the surface of the ocean. Uh, My Octopus Teacher is a documentary that some people, or at least one person that I've spoken to in this strangely, you know, isolated and isolating world has, has recommended recently. Uh, My Octopus Teacher, I'm going to keep it very brief, quite honestly, this time, um, is a documentary that starts off sort of intriguing. You've got a man who spends his time in, I forget even where the cove is, uh, South Africa, I think. He's grown up by the ocean and he's always had a sort of pull towards the ocean so he says in very earnest voiceover and then um, starts to at a moment of sort of crisis in his life um, loses faith in his career which I think is basically in like wildlife or natural world photography and decides to go start diving and when diving or maybe go back to diving I think he has some experience he encounters this incredible creature, an octopus, and he starts to chart the activities of that oc- octopus. So from that point of view, it is really interesting. There's some great footage, uh, you know, natural world world. Um Shooting the natural world, I think, is something that sort of appeals to me. Um, And I think to a lot of people, judging by the numbers that, like, planet Earth-type stuff does. But the thing that kind of lost me a bit about my octopus teacher is when you start to get the impression... I mean, Paul Risker here, you said this thing about projects are pumped out maybe before they're finished. And in this case, it's a slightly different thing. It feels to me like a guy who got a load of really good footage... And then after the fact, wants to package that into something that is a kind of saleable production to a distributor. So, what we get is kind of overlaying um, COD sort of philosophy about what the creature might mean and how the life of the creature might actually have echoes of the man's life and how we're all in the circle of life and rebirth. And there are just things that feel like a real stretch of, you know, one to eight tentacles in this movie. So it also gets a bit weird because it does feel a little bit like he is having an illicit affair with an octopus. The amount of time (laughs) that he spends sneaking off in the morning and kind of entangling with the octopus and then it's putting its little suckers on his body and he's sure it's definitely a female. It does get a bit touch and go in there i think on you know sort of decency grounds but on that basis alone i'm gonna watch it to be honest (laughs) yeah i mean i mean absolutely i recommend it for the footage right less so the voiceover the overlay and the kind of meaning that he tries to sort of push on it i think but it's an interesting thing man and it's on netflix it's accessible so why not give it a try my octopus teacher is that one Uh, paul risco over to you yeah
2: so i think it's coming out in america in an in the next few days or so, uh, Sean Durkins, Vanest uh, did Martha Marcy May Marlene previously.
0: That's a film that Pete likes a lot. I don't know if anyone listened to the show is aware. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm buzzing about this. I'm I'm intrigued to hear what you have to say about it. Honestly. I
2: really enjoyed it. Um, I I went in and I'd actually spoken to somebody a matter of days before who said they were not overly impressed by it. So all of a sudden, I tempered my expectations just the, i mean it's all about a kind of marriage fracturing a family fracturing but whereas typically in these types of stories you build up to this big dramatic moment where it's all kind of externalized what durkin does with this is he simply keeps it internalized and he almost plays it all down he kind of stifles it so it's not about as such the actual kind of reaching breaking point it's just about that simmering tension of what's not said and what's really interesting about it is it gets around the characters even having to say things because there's characters because the couple Jude Law Carrie Coon's, and they move from the US back to England, and she kind of uh, a riding teacher. She loves her horses. So Jude Law says, "I'll build you a stables on our property, so you don't have to go to the stables. I'll be right there." And something happens to the kind of horse in the film, and the horse becomes this metaphor, which is so beautifully done, because the characters don't even need to speak or say anything. It doesn't almost need to show it with the characters. The horse becomes this kind of symbol for so much of what's happening. But the skill of a film is just to internalise everything. Don't tread that kind of same old worn path of building to this big dramatic moment almost never even approached well, you kind of approach it, but don't actually go there. And I think that will divide some people who kind of want to see that typical traditional arc fulfilled, but he's got no interest in doing that. I don't think it's about provoking us. I don't think it's necessarily even about challenging us per se. I think he's somebody who just appreciates sometimes the unspoken. And if you look at Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, the end of that film almost isn't the end of the film it's still to be finished. And I think he's somebody who's quite happy to let a film end and say the drama is actually being incomplete rather than complete. And he's actually happy to leave it in our hands to kind of, well, what do we think happens next? But actually sometimes what happens next, the finality, isn't really always the most important things in stories. How many films do you watch where actually... It's nice to have a full stop, but you really like the setup and you like the conflict and that's the that's the thing that draws you in. And I think that's Durkin's skill to realise that, but at the same time it will divide people and people are gonna not like it because of that. But if you if you don't, then it really wasn't your kind of film and you need to kind of almost tip your cap, wish him well, and just kind of step aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. No. It sounds
0: good. I'm going to check check that out definitely. Um, yeah, it sounds it re- sounds really good, yeah. and and I, l- I love what you're saying about how like the maybe the next chapter kind of plays out after the credits because that's exactly how I felt about Martha Marcy May Marlene. Like like the film just carried on running. But I like in, I like in- that
1: when 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 people do that because like people always I've always quite liked ambiguous endings. I like I like that because there is. There's an argument say like well that's it now that's the time you get to spend with those characters that's not up to the old, like it's up to the the creators to decide just because you're not satisfied with the end doesn't mean it's not a good ending that's when that's when the filmmakers have decided your time with those characters is over so um,
0: yeah I'm a big fan of a big fan of those kind of endings for sure do you guys remember from a few years ago um, that David Cronenberg made a short film called The Nest. And it was about a woman in an interview who was convinced that her breast or stomach or something was full of bugs. I've heard of it; I haven't seen and it. It just it, but... kind of as, as you were talking about this internalized thing, I just got this image <laughs> of the <laughs> the same title popping up again.
2: Yeah, uh, no, I've never I've heard of it, never no seen it. The, um, yeah, but also the thing as well about the ending in cinema—it's such a load of nonsense because. Why is it just because you say, well, this is the end of the story? Well, it's not the characters in a sense will carry on living. It's just because you don't see it and because that story is not told doesn't mean that's actually the end. There is really no beginning and end to any story, there's what happens before it, there's what happens after. So, anybody who says, I really want the beginning, middle, and end, it's like, well, it's just an illusion that you're just willing to buy into. And this is where cinema maybe kind of if he wants to find originality this is one of the ways he can do it is kind of really smash that illusion or simply do things kind of like uh hellions does uh, bruce mcdonald's film where it changes kind of story halfway through or well, uh, is it james Wan's uh Ins- insidious it's first half is one film the second half is another so there are ways cinema can actually really try to you know do something original moving forward or make itself more original it's always a question will we go along for a ride and because it's a commercial entity if people don't accept it then cinema can't try to be original it's a really interesting kind of relationship between audience consumer and storytellers in the films
1: well I'm going to take that segue into commercial (laughs) cinema um, and talk about the next film that I want to talk about which is certainly a film that was made for commercial cinema Uh, this is Greenland Um, this is directed by Rick Romanoir uh, a war I think his name is uh, written by Chris Sparling and starring has anyone seen the trailer for this by the way Uh, this stars Gerard Butler and Marina Baccarin um, this is a disaster film starring <laughs> Jared Butler everyone. Who knew this was gonna come out? Um, if anyone's seen the trailer, well if anyone's seen any other Gerard Butler film you know what to expect from his performance. He's very earnest and takes the whole thing far too seriously uh, which is great. Sometimes I enjoy Jared Butler's performances other times I do not. Um, this is a film about the end of the world. Um, a comet is due to pass very close to the earth um, and in fact, a fragment of the comet is due to land in the ocean, but you won't believe it, guys. You won't believe it. The comet, do- the fra- the fragment of the comet, doesn't hit in the ocean. It hits the main, it hits the mainland US, and an even bigger section of the comet breaks off and is going to cause an extinction-level event. So, I think you have an idea and, of what to expect. And Gerard from Butler
0: this. catches it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gerard Butler catches it, kicks it off, and just says, this, what is were you worried about? <laughs> and kicks it back into orbit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so if you know, what, well, you might think you'd know what to expect from this, uh, which is, you know, an effects heavy, an effects-heavy, not particularly well written, pretty kind of middle of the road, mediocre story, reasonably well acted, I guess, from Gerard Butler, depending on what you think of him. That might be what you expect. What you actually get is, unfortunately, um, a disaster movie that's very light on disaster. Um, there's the, the first half's like ridiculous the, well I say the first half the first half an hour is as silly as you'd expect um, they're trying to evacuate people they're trying to evacuate people in planes that have all got these armbands on and then someone it's almost like someone slips over it, a banana skin uh, and then there's a fuel leak and then all the planes blow up um, that, that's the kind of thing that you want from these kind of films and you get that for probably the first half an hour and then you get a good sort of hour and ten minutes of just Gerard Butler and Marina Bacarin looking for their kids um and just meeting other sort of bit part actors and meeting badly fleshed out characters and there's just no destruction for a good sort of hour and 10 minutes in an end of the world movie there's no destruction and the story is not strong enough to carry you through that the last 15 minutes things blow up again and like, hey that's okay they'll they'll go into a bunker and the world ends and like they all come out say so happy ever after there's a spoiler for you um but it's i don't know just i can't it do you know what I mean? You don't expect these films to be great, let's be honest, but you do expect a certain level, like you expect a certain level of effect, you expect a certain level of disaster and you kind of know what you let yourself in for. A disaster movie that contains this little disaster, for me, is a massive letdown. Pete.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've no sympathy, you did it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what advice well I did this to myself as well, but I don't, re- I don't regret it. Uh, I finally, finally, finally... Caught up with Wake in Fright, which I've been meaning to see for goodness knows how many years, and it was very, very strongly recommended to me uh, about three years ago by a student of mine, and it was another reminder that I needed to get to it. And still, it took me three years. But Wake in Fright, you guys, I'm, I'm gonna guess, have probably seen this yes. before. Well, I haven't yeah. seen it. I'll be honest. I have. Yeah. Oh, Paul, Paul get involved. Yeah. Uh, well, Paul A rather than Paul R, who, who has seen it. I mean, this thing is. Um, for for those who don't know, is pretty much the story of what it's like when you want to leave a place, like a party or the pub or, I don't know, a family holiday or something like that, but you literally can't. And every time you make an attempt to get away, something pulls you back in and you almost realise that you just have to resign yourself to always being in this kind of hellish stasis. I mean, in the film, uh, the central character takes a position as a teacher. He's going to be a teacher because uh, if he can do, I think it's like a year, years worth of teaching, then he receives back the kind of deposited money that he has to put down and he'll also receive his salary for the year. But he's kind of bound into doing this amount of time as a teacher. Along the way, he gets caught up in small town Australia in a place that seems to be pretty much predicated on gambling around flipping coins Uh, that is what the people are interested in that's how they spend their time that and just drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and that's university to me yeah this this sounds like (laughs) on its face this is like a good thing you know like you go in there you do some gambling you socialize Australian people are social social beings you have some drinks people will buy you drinks no no one ever asks him to buy his own drinks no come on in have another one And then you realize that like, eventually you want the party to end. You want the social interaction to end but it won't and it can't and you can't get away and it's getting weird and people are stripping away all the layers of the onion as as regards their minimal kind of airs and graces and being reduced to these kind of animalistic husks of men who just want to like wrestle each other and spit on each other and and kind of uh yeah just just claw each other to death and it all becomes pretty nightmarish and and pretty almost like um like an examination of of sort of hopelessness and and nihilism and 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 all of that sounds like a big you know red flag don't watch it it's horrible but I'd recommend it very highly Um, not least also because they do a a really slightly funny and weird kangaroo fight sequence in this as well Um, but yeah it's it's really really good it's got its reputation for a reason it's not totally pleasant it might ha- take you to some difficult places but it's it's worth the trip i think waking fright uh, it, it's available right now through bfi player i think which we talked about recently as being an amazing service by the way get on board it is a brilliant service yes mm-hmm. you absolutely get on board with it uh paul have you got the last one for us yeah so i
2: kind of uh watched a documentary uh, recently kind of called rbg roof Bader ginsburg uh, kind of fitting to watch it because it wasn't that long ago that uh, Donald Trump was stood by a casket and I can't remember what the American people were chanting I think he was like get him out or something and Obama responded by saying you know kind of you need to get out there and vote uh, she was one of the liberal judges on the US Supreme Court uh, appointed by Clinton Um, it's just a she became this popular cultural kind of icon because she would actually give uh, basically verdicts, which she dis- she disagreed with the court basically and she was very kind of um, instrumental in you know kind of getting women rights in an american society without her uh, i mean you know the society would be actually, it would be vastly different uh really fought for gender equality, but also even on the Supreme Court, she really fought for those kind of core values that she believed in she believed in fairness and you know kind of making sure people kind of had their rights adhered to and they were protected um what 's so striking about her though, is because she kind of i mean you look at America right now, how divided it is. At one time, she she was a kind of person who, maybe, and this is a lesson for all of us, even in this country, is she would actually give something up to kind of create a kind of common ground with the conservative judges and... You know, with how politics are, she is a great kind of icon for how we have to work together, how we have to compromise, and when everything is so adversarial, even here where you've got pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, and the government uh, under Johnson simply views everything as being... You know, we should have the right to do whatever we please. And in America, you've got those sharp divisions now kind of saying the election's been stolen. I think she's just kind of, she's such a timely figure. And she's somebody we can all learn something from, and it's such a rich and detailed documentary that's not afraid as well to highlight errors in judgment on her part, but also kind of show that. Well,
1: that's quite refreshing then. Yeah. I guess it's not just it's not like um, what's the puff piece? No, no, um, really, kind of no, thorough and in
2: depth, and definitely worth watching for you know anybody who's got any kind of interest in kind of, uh, um, kind of social justice or just. Anything, really, wants their finger on the pulse uh, in the contemporary world. Really
1: nice, nice. Um, I'm going to veer off in a completely different <laughs> direction from uh, from a documentary. I watched Valley Girl today, the uh, the 2020 Valley Girl, the remake uh, of a film I've never seen, so I can't compare this to the original, which a lot of people seem to have done. This is directed by uh, Rachel E. Goldenberg and stars, among other people, the ever brilliant um, and staggeringly beautiful Jessica Roth. Um, Josh Whitehouse is in this, Jesse Ennis Uh, unfortunately YouTuber Logan Paul is also in this which is probably which leaves a bit of a stain on the film Um, but I've, I looked at the reviews kind of after I'd finished it. I really enjoyed this. I, I had a great time with it. It's not, there are moments when you think some of the audio isn't as well, perhaps, edited as it should be. Um, it's got a very good 80s soundtrack. They've, t- they've taken, I don't believe the original's a musical, unless I'm otherwise mistaken, I might be wrong. Um, but. Yeah, I thought this this was just a lot of fun. It's a it's a the young cast the young cast are very entertaining. Um, the kind of reworking of eighties pop songs is a lot of fun. The soundtrack had my tapping had me tapping my feet all the way through. The plot's as predictable as you'd expect, but I think it had personally for me it had a lot of charm um, and it was exactly the kind of I woke up. I don't know, the kind of woke up with grey skies in the midst of a lockdown. It's kind of exactly what I needed today, really, when I watched it this afternoon. Um, and Jessica Roth deserves to be a much bigger star than she is. Um, so I, controversially, will say I really liked Valley Girl. Um, come at me, listeners, because most people... <laughs> I've not really found anyone else that's liked it so far. So um, I might be wrong, but I
0: really enjoyed it. Uh, Pete? Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to dig too much into the expression, come at me listeners, I really liked Valley Girl, but uh, I instead will will jump into uh, this bunch of weirdness that is uh, For Love's Sake from 2012, this one available on BFI Player as well, it's a good service, check it out, as we've said before. Um, It's a film from the director, Miike Takeshi, that I think people will be very aware of from things like... Itchy the Killer or Visitor Q or depending how weird you want to go uh, Happiness of the Katakuris if you want something that's a little bit in line with what this is because people who watch uh, Mike Takeshi films will know that he produces about five of them a year uh, and this one is a high school drama that is something of a reworking of Romeo and Juliet although it is also ultra violent it has sections of just mass fist fighting um, it has some really gris stuff in here some sort of manga style bloodletting and violence it's all over the map there are like sections in it where well almost every character in it just bursts into song at a certain point some of the numbers pretty catchy although japanese and subtitled obviously it is mad but like I say that as someone who kind of just started to smile when it got weird because I know the ride, roughly speaking, that I'm in for with this filmmaker. Uh, those people people that don't my wife included my wife walked in and I was as I was watching this and she was like what what is wrong with you what what is this and I was like I don't know what you're talking about it's Romeo and Juliet but it's a Japanese high school drama and there's just loads of violence in it and and it's a musical um yeah it really weird so much so much fun I think if you like that sort of thing which I do so for love's sake it was worth it I didn't know that existed so I mean similarly when when my
1: wife came in and I say came in and caught me watching my wife came in and caught me watching Enter the Ninja uh, and she just looked at me and she was like what is wrong with you? And then just <laughs> walk back out of the room again. I was like, it's ninjas.
0: <laughs> it's ninjas,
1: goddammit. Um, but yeah, ninjas um, and Take- Miki Takeshi Musicals uh, bring us to the end of Popcorn Movies, a bumper popcorn movie section. And I think in the title of the show, we will probably call it Bumper Popcorn Movies uh, plus Top 5 Worst Sequels. But before we get to Top 5 Worst Sequels, we'll be back with a very brief um, coming attractions. just to talk about two of the big releases coming next week that we're excited about. We're back after this.
0: So we are back. And as promised, before the little break there, we have two previews this week, two things on the horizon that may or may not be is piquing your interest, I guess. Uh, one of those, and we'll kick off with this one, is Hillbilly Elegy, which is going to be rolled out wide on Netflix on the 24th of November, at least in the UK, but I think worldwide as well. Uh, this one directed by your boy, Ron Howard, who is I would say block capitals, italicized and underlined a bit hit and miss. The world's most inconsistent director. <laughs> yeah, but heart of the sea, I'm looking at you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for, for this one, we have, I think some reasons to be excited, intrigued, interested, not least the ensemble cast, including, but not limited, limited to Glenn Close, uh, Haley Bennett, who of course was in Swallow, which is probably going to end up being my film of the year, if I'm honest. Uh, and, And then uh, Amy Adams, who is in lots of projects that I think are worth people's time. Um, It tells the story of a Yale Law student who's drawn back to his hometown to grapple with his family history, Appalachian Values and the American Dream. When I read that synopsis, Paul Anderson and Paul Risker, I think this might not be very good. What about you guys? (laughs) Um, Um, Paul, I'll let you jump in, Paul. Yeah,
2: I... To be honest, kind of, it just it just sounds like something quite kind of weak, flimsy, predictable, sentimental, maybe. It's something that's kind of be passable uh, at best. Uh, you'll watch it. You'll maybe enjoy it, but you're going to move on from it pretty quickly. I mean, it's really bad to judge things. So, kind of before you've even seen it. But some of these synopsis sometimes just don't do films any favors whatsoever. And you can never trust them. But if that's, I mean, if that's the kind of an accurate synopsis, then. I'm definitely going in with low expectations. I'm expecting it to be a very lukewarm response.
0: Where are you, Paul?
1: Uh, It's probably a little bit warmer than that because it's Ron Howard and he's done more good than bad. Has he though? Has has he?
0: Solo. (laughs) Has he? (laughs) Has he? I'm contradicting myself. I enjoy Solo. You've got Inferno, Dreadful. In the Heart of the Sea. Oh bollocks! I've forgotten All right, all right. I
1: I, I stand back. I've forgotten he'd done the Dan Brown films and he? He's done, didn't he do I, all I the damn? I think
0: Dan he Brayon might have. Decisions? Yeah, Rush. Rush to okay, my mind right. was the last Rush thing that good. I really cared about. Um,
1: okay. Uh, in which case, um, no, I'm out. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It, it 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 looks like for better or worse, it looks like an Oscar bait film. And sometimes that's okay. I think it. I think it will be it will be well enough put together whether the story will be anything above average I don't know um, I mean it's a new film um, in 2020 so on that basis I'm excited um, and the cast are good I'm looking forward to seeing what the cast can do but I'm yeah I'm kind of I'm probably with you guys to be honest I'm not I wasn't massively sold on the trailer I'm not hugely sold on the concept um, and yeah Ron Howard yeah hit and
0: miss doesn't even come close to his uh, his output <laughs> well well, I can give you the old one two punch of positive negative negative. one Frida Pinto's in it she's got a beautiful face two (laughs) Metacritic currently has a rating of 40 for that movie. Uh, second one for this week is Possessor now this one uh, has got my interest much more so than the first this one I know also and I, I don't really want to dwell on it because it makes me angry Paul Anderson I think you've already seen it is from Brandon Cronenberg of course Son of David uh, and it is called Possessor and it's probably going to be all mucky and weird and I'm very much in for that. Uh, what I can gather from this synopsis uh, Possessor follows an agent who works for a secretive organisation that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high-paying clients. Now, have you both seen this? Yes. Yep. Sorry, dude. (laughs) Unbelievable. Uh, Reasons to be definitely be
1: excited, is is what I would say. I mean, Antiviral was possibly Brandon Cronenberg's film before this, which I know you, I think, liked. I liked it, yeah. I wasn't massively struck on Antiviral. I thought it was okay, so I kind of went into Possessor with a bit of trepidation. But I, I, fuck, I thought Possessor was superb. I really, really liked it. I mean, it's you know, he's a, he clearly knows how to use moments of extreme violence to great effect. The premise, I think, is is really well done here. And Andrea is it Andrea Roseborough? Yeah. yeah. Um, is is superb again. This this kind of she's she kind of adopted. She's she kind of picked out a lot of roles recently. She was in Mandy. She's definitely she definitely is the kind of go to for these more more extreme. I say ex- extreme would be a fair description. Sort of extreme out there horror stuff um, and certainly more experimental sci fi projects and mm. that kind of thing. She's really really well suited to this.
0: Um, and this is the guy from, um, piercing. Uh, Hmm? Christopher Abbott's in it that's who I'm, I'm yeah he's in, he of. was in
1: um what come it comes at night as well wasn't it yeah which is where I probably know him from he's great in it um yeah I think I'd really think you should be excited for this one I think it's I think it's great um and we'll probably well, we're not going to veer into reviewing it because we'll probably do that on the next episode but Paul would you agree Pete should be excited or?
2: oh yeah I mean it's one of those films that when you've seen it you're not going to forget that you've seen it. And I, I, I do think it's one of those films which would play really well on a big screen. I've had conversations with other kind of friends who've seen yeah, good it. Good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, it is <laughs> yeah. a beautiful film to look at. Uh, one of the reasons yeah. I was excited was Chris Abbott. I think he's I, I think he's a really good actor. And this is another film where, you know, he basically kind of, um, it's a really good role for him. But yeah, it's it's just one of those films which kind of almost walks up and punches you in the face. It's a very old style. It's a a bit more retro kind of, it's got that kind of spirit of an old, more of an old fashioned sci-fi film. It's not kind of uh, the kind of sci-fi films you might get nowadays. So definitely, um, definitely want to kind of see as soon as you can
0: yeah
1: absolutely so um yeah it, we might quite like it on this show um i've got a feeling pete knowing you as i do that you will rather enjoy this as well so we'll see when we come up to a future episode but yeah that is out on the uk video on demand release so rental somewhere from friday the 27th hillbilly elegy that's the first time i've managed to say it today uh, is out on tuesday the 24th on netflix uh, and that brings us to the end of the coming attractions section we'll be back after this with our top five or perhaps bottom five or top five, we'll go with top five worst sequels uh, after this.
0: So here it is. Uh, I guess we should try and keep this top five relatively brief because I've just had a look yeah. at the running time, and we don't want to go too long. But... schedule.
1: It was an enjoyable popcorn movie section, but
0: it was uh, less pop and more corn. That doesn't even make sense. Yeah, we we need to we need to learn the lesson that um, being in quarantine just leads to like an excessive number of films to cover, <laughs> yeah. and we probably need to put out a podcast like every three days, yeah. Yeah. but uh, just to sort of vent that stuff out, right? But uh, yeah we're going to get to it top five were if that yeah as you were saying Paul it didn't really make sense but top five worst or most disappointing sequels I'm going to say I don't want to go first you guys are welcome to who wants to pitch in with a number five and I guess we'll keep it pretty snappy in terms of the the points and stuff here
1: yeah um, Paul, do you want to go first yeah. with your Paul Risco okay. with your number five or fifth fifth best worst? You know, you know where we're coming from. Yeah,
2: I mean um, Halloween two just purely because the first Halloween, there's no motive. It's a random choice who he kind of goes after, and in the in the sequel, it's there's a family connection, and it's just an example of really a bad bit of storytelling to take the kind of brilliance of the first one and just completely kind of chuck it kind of uh throw it under the bus. so yeah, that's why halloween 2 is it the worst sequel ever is it really that bad possibly not but for that reason of kind of undermining the first film always has left me feeling incredibly disappointed in carpenter
0: no,
1: fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Pete, do you want to jump in next? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my basic parameters for this maybe similar to you guys is like I didn't pick anything where I didn't like the first film. I've so kind of it's, gone down that route as well. To
1: be
0: fair, yeah, yeah. There's always love for like an original, and then it's kind of gone off the rails. And and I feel like not particularly proud of this list to be <laughs> honest, compared to some that we've done. But <laughs> but number three, uh, sorry, number three, number five for me trying is. To skip uh, I'll see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, you'll you know why it's in my head. It is uh, a little film called Piranha Three Double Paul <laughs> Oh. Uh, now, now let's let's get things straight. Let's let's be real here the first Piranha movie is not Jaws, first of all. The, the original Piranha movie is not Jaws, but I think it's a pretty effective film. I'm talking about the, like, 70s original. Um, and at the time that I first saw it, it was incredibly effective. At least I, I felt incredibly nervous about Piranhas from that point onwards. Uh, and then we had this reboot-y kind of thing with Piranha um, directed by Alex Ayer. and then the sequel to that, which was to be Piranha 3 3- double d or whatever uh which is this thing which kind of is just all over the place it goes from kind of being silly in a kind of um adam scott you know riding around on a jet ski killing piranhas with a semi-automatic weapon to like a lot of kind of just high school humour, but like in the worst way, I think. And then also reaching for kind of pop culture relevance. David Hasselhoff's in it. I mean, I don't know. It, it's a mess. And it it's one of those things, you know, like where you, you kind of feel a certain, um, not pride, but like you just feel a kind of zeal about like silly genre stuff when you're watching it in the cinema and it feels like a real release. And then there'll be an experience like this one where you start to think like, oh, I am really wasting my life. Like, why do, why do I follow things like this? Uh, yeah, dog shit. That's my number five. Uh, what about you, Paul? Uh, number five for me, oh, the order of these are in. Um, I'm going to move this one up a little.
1: <laughs> uh, number five for me, I'm going to go with American Werewolf in Paris, there we go I talked about it earlier, the film that spawned this brilliant feature idea um, Wow, initially when I started watching American Werewolf in Paris for the first time the other day I thought this, had, this was re I thought this was the werewolf film that had been belatedly rebadged as a sequel the more you go on with the film you realise no it was in fact written as a sequel um, to one of my favourite horror films of all time I mean it's just, it's a prime example if there's ever an example of a desperate cash in by a studio however many years later i mean this was this came out the same year as starship troopers in 1997 the cgi is the cgi werewolves in it for a start which are appalling the lead actor um i think it's tom everett scott is appalling um the only person that comes out of this with any kind of credibility is julie delpy to be honest but even though i'm just like what are you doing in this film like you're better than this material it just everything that the first film does right, this film does wrong. It's it's appalling. It's one of the one of the absolutely perhaps even one of my fifth least favourite sequels that I've ever seen. Uh, Mister Risker, over to you.
2: I was always a big fan of Fincher's Alien Three. From the first time I saw the theatrical cut, I liked it. I thought it was actually a very good film, and I always loved the director's cut as well. I actually think in some ways it's a better film than Aliens. I know for some that's like sacrilege. So for me, when I kind of saw Alien Resurrection, I just felt like this huge drop-off where you had Scott, Cameron, Fincher all delivered. And then kind of Jean-Pierre Jeunet turns up. And basically just uh, takes a dump on the <laughs> franchise as it was back then, so that's one of that's why I'm putting that in there because it was just this all of a sudden kind of oh, it's over. the brilliance has ended, and it's kind of one of those things I didn't want it to end. And yeah, so I've never forgiven Jean-Pierre Jeunet for it. Do you know that
1: film has almost exactly the same plot as Critters Four, don't you? Which was also, which was Critters set in space, and I think came out a couple of years before Alien Resurrection. Honestly, I mean, I was when we did our Critters night years ago, when we did all four Critters films back to back. I was pretty baked by the time Critters Four came on, so I might. might be some differences but i do recall having alien resurrection having a similar plot to critters four um so that that side note aside um pete what have you got next
0: (laughs) what have i got you're enjoying this list Um, i have well i have a film incidentally paul that um i got angry about on the show when it released so maybe it's got i think we go back and check that out too this is a film from 2017, so not very long ago at all. It is Kingsman: oh, The Golden Circle. This is probably my favourite show I've
1: done with you because you were so angry.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it's kind of tenuous that it's on this list because I didn't particularly like Kingsman, the the first film, but I thought, you know, it had it had its. Um, good qualities it was kind of zippy fun and i get it and i get what they were doing and i don't really like matthew vaughan and i don't really like like his sensibilities and here he is again and everything's worse everything's worse and it kind of does some of the stuff that piranha 3d does as well that is like reaching for kind of pop culture figures but sort of dated i like irony on irony on irony and it's so dumb and so like limited in its ambition and then it's sexist and it's misogynist and it's just like, there's nothing in its head. And I hate it. I hate it with with a really really, deep passion. In fact, no, I don't because I haven't really thought about it since then until now. So I think the hatred is one of those that you really have to go to the filing cabinet and kind of get it out to remember how you felt. Uh, not unlike something like A Million Little Pieces that I talked about from from last year, I guess. But yeah, I just... I just don't want to live in a world that is run by people who produce films like this film. And unfortunately, I do live in that world, and that is the cross that I have to bear. So, um, yeah, this golden circle. And if they could have called this, like, the brown circle or something, they probably would have, wouldn't they? But they couldn't get it past the censors. <laughs> Bunch of dickheads hated it. Uh, so, for me, number four
1: is... And I, although... I <laughs> Humorously, I used to try and reference this film in every possible film lecture I could at university. This is Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight colon Jason Takes Manhattan from 1989. Um, the reason this is so bad—I mean, most of the Friday, all of the Friday the Thirteenth sequels are bad in their own way. Um, let's let's be perfectly honest here. Um, I don't. This is one of those those series of films which. I don't get the fondness for rewatching these films over and over again, to be honest. There's a lot of better horror films out there. You don't need to watch all the parts of the Friday the 13th series. Maybe watch them once if you're a glutton from punishment, but they're not. I mean, fine. Do, do, do what you enjoy, people, but I don't I don't get the idea of re-watching these over and over again. This one, though, um, is particularly egregious because the poster makes it look like the whole film set in Manhattan, the whole the trailer makes it look like the whole film set in Manhattan when in fact most of it's set on a boat on the way to Manhattan and it's about the last 10 minutes where Jason is actually in Manhattan so you think you're getting a departure for the series and what you're getting is a lazy retread of some kills from the earlier films um, and a, just a very a pretty dull a pretty dull, unlikable slasher film that only has um, a few a few key moments set in Manhattan. It does, however, feature one of my top five movie deaths of all time because Jason Voorhees punches a man's head off. Um, so I'll give it that much, um, <laughs> but I'm not going to give it any more than that. That is uh, Friday the 13th, part eight, colon Jason takes Manhattan. All of these have got colons in actually now, from now on on this list, interestingly enough. <laughs> uh, Paul Risker, back to you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I kind of not long ago I kind of did a rewatch of um, the Rocky films, and I mean it's again it's not the worst it's not a really bad sequel in a traditional sense but Rocky Five, I remember getting to it and I love the kind of the idea of the young kind of uh, the sh- kind of who is training turns on him, and that Street Five could have been like you know something special but there's no heart and soul to the film it really does feel like they're just reaching all the way through it and when you go back and you actually look at each of those first four films they've all got their own personality all got their character they've all got energy and i just remember rewatching those recently and just how noticeable and i never noticed it when i was younger when i first saw it really does lack a personality and just any kind of spirit or energy and it just feels such a kind of shame because when you see what's followed i seem to have rediscovered it and it's this kind of really strange blip you know within the kind of entire rocky kind of saga so not not bad in the sense of awful just in terms of like i'm looking to things which kind of left me feeling a bit disappointed perhaps and you know like halloween to uh and resurrection this is kind of in that same kind of vein
0: nice Pete yeah, I, I'm totally on board with that that sentiment about just things that felt disappointing at the time that they released, and and that sort of rolls into to the next one for me. And and I I don't feel like I, I guess I don't need to apologize. But my list is very contemporary. I don't know if that's just because there've been more sequels in the last twenty years. More contemporary sequels than there's been pre- historic yeah. sequels. Mine's fairly contemporary as well. I think so. They've they've made me angrier maybe, but this one uh, number three is Crank Two High Voltage. Bear Ooh, with me, shout. Crank. <laughs> is genuinely good so uh, you know I'm happy to have an argument about it but it's genuinely good because what you have is this like um, high concept setup where you, you, Chev Chelios guys we all know his name <laughs> Chev Chelios is in a, in a predicament where his heartbeat can't drop below a certain level like, otherwise he will die it's speed in his body and it starts off with that bit with the refused track and he smashes up a flat screen TV and then it's on it's great for what it is but then you, the brothers or the, the boys Neville Dean and taylor decided to rehash the whole thing and thought that they were really onto a winner with all the positive feedback i guess from from the original crank and so they kind of try to yoke everything up but it just it's like telling on yourself because then the way that they go with that again veers into just being kind of woman hating and lazy and ugly and kind of repellent at times and it seems weird that I can have such a strong negative feeling about Crank 2 High Voltage and then defend Crank, which is, you know, knockabout trash in its own right. But there is, whether it's a thin line, I don't know, but there is certainly for me a line between doing something that that is just like a shot in the arm and doing something that that reveals certain preoccupations, let's say, that are maybe a little bit ugly to look at and that's that's how I felt about Crank 2 and again it was another one where you kind of wake up on yourself and go like, oh god, I got lured in and now I'm this guy watching this film so yeah, I, I, I'm i not for it I wish it didn't exist uh, who's, who's next? Hi, it's me up next um, I'm going to go with Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2
1: colon Freddy's Revenge What the fuck were they thinking with this absolute monstrosity? The first Nightmare on Elm Street film is great. I love as much. It's as much like a sort of terrifying fantasy, dreamlike fantasies is horror film. I really like the creativity in it. I really like the character of Freddy in it. And more, more irritatingly, this is why Part Two Elm, Elm Street Part Two irritates me the most. Do you remember the end of Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you remember when they, when Freddy drives them all off in the car, and it might leave it open for a sequel? Oh, maybe it does leave it open for a sequel. Then they make a sequel and completely fucking ignore all of it. They completely ignore all of it. They cast a new cast, which is just some terrible actors, completely unlikable cast. Um, it just doesn't work. It just feels like, I don't know. I mean, they they, they, they horror sequels are uh, you know they're quite, almost an easy target. But this, for me, just um I just I. The quality fall-off between this and the original film is, one I think, one of the biggest dips in a horror film series that I've seen full stop. I just could not bear this um, and I would really, really struggled to get through it and it's, yeah, I, I, I can't bear to watch it again. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy Revenge. I'm almost almost in tears. Paul Risker. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I loved Unbreakable when it came out of the cinema and I still love it. Uh, I think it's one of the Kind of it's a grey kind of superhero origin story. Again, going with the same vein of stuff that isn't an awful sequel compared to say some things. When you look to split and when you say look to glass and this kind of completion of a super this like Scheimelin's soup a superhero trilogy, it just it's again it's that thing of trying to follow something up after too many years have passed. And Unbreakable had this great presence. It was so kind of subtle. Everything was downplayed. It had a, it had a real realism to it. And then when you come to kind of split, the way they use kind of a mental health angle, it's kind of all so kind of dramatic it's such kind of formulaic storytelling and then you kind of get to glass which just becomes a bit more hyper it just feels like you're always getting more and more away from what you loved about what that kind of the origins of that trilogy were so not like awful in the sense of like you can't watch these films but just again disappointing that like something was lost something that you really loved and something that made that film so special and to this day it's like a film which perhaps you put it as a film of that year when it came out but something was definitely lost as a consequence of those sequels almost to a point i'd say to people if you haven't seen them and you love
0: Unbreakable. Just don't oh, bother with them. testify. Put them both in the <laughs> bin. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> yeah. the, only, the only difference is, for me, I, I didn't massively go for Unbreakable. But, yeah, definitely those two sequels just oh, got on my nerves. But we've talked about it before on the show, and I do want to... The, yeah, hammer the point, I guess. Um, yeah, worst thing Andy Taylor Joy's ever done, right? Uh, you haven't seen the mate. So, no, true. That is true. Yeah, I, I'm yet to to you treat to pay myself. yourself for that, that masterpiece. Um, I've, I think, is it me yes, now? Uh, I have gone for one that I can pretty much sum up my dislike for this and disappointment in some individual person and also everyone involved around one scene and it is the actress Heather Matarazzo being hung upside down and sliced up and bled almost dry into a bath. This is a film written by Eli Roth with characters from Eli Roth directed by Eli Roth and it is whatever Eli Roth did with Hostel Part 2. So again, I'm in that same territory where it's like, yeah, but why would this be so disappointing? Because Hostel is, you know, what Hostel is. But I have such a distinct memory of going to the cinema to see the original Hostel movie and then walking home with this really sort of unnerved, sort of unsettling cloud around me, and and in a good way, where I felt like, you know, for better or worse, that film has had a big impact on me in in a kind of you're just sort of a a, a kind of on a gut level, I guess. And then this thing is just like everything up to 11. And yes, I'll go back to it. Heather Matarazzo, for me, is the character with the braces and the big glasses in Welcome to the Dollhouse. And to do this to that person, just fuck you, man. Like, just stop. You may, just make a good film and let it be. Just let it be. And I think that's what often gets me with, with this list, I guess. And thinking about this list is like, when you've got a project that worked... Just let it work, let it be, let it live, move on, make your green infernos and, you know, hook up with your 15 year old what next wife or whatever you're going to do. But like, just chill on ruining the thing that was good. And that's what he did here. And I hate this movie. Uh, Paul, what do you think? I can't decide which order, but I'm, I'm committed now. And number two is Transformers colon
1: Revenge of the Fallen. Or Transformers, colon, the angriest I've ever been in a cinema. Um, Don't get me wrong, the first Transformers film isn't that much cop. But at the time, it was great to see giant robots clashing on the screen. The effects were good. Transformers were one of my favourite things growing up. And I came out... Of the first Michael Bay Transformers film thinking, hey, that wasn't that wasn't so bad. I had a, kind of a good time with it in places. And then the, when they announced the sequel, I was like, right, okay. What they can do for me here is they can, there can be less goofy human characters. That's fine. There can be more robot action. That'll be fine. And instead what we get is this in, almost incoherent absolute heap of shit. Um, there's more goofy human characters. They're all really bad actors. There's some really weird subplots about stone parents on campus. I think that's this one. There's a Transformer that I think disguises herself as a human. There's Devastator, the giant Transformer that's got swinging testicles. Ha 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 ha. There's a plethora of racist robots. There's more creepy There's more creepy objectification of Megan Fox. Why isn't this number one? Why isn't this number one in my worst sequels list? I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, I hated this film to the point where... People were laughing at jokes in the cinema and I was saying out loud, what are you laughing at? It's not funny. I was actually shouting at other audience members for laughing at a film in the cinema. I was unhappy with this film. I travelled up to London to watch it in IMAX as well, so it cost me a pretty penny to go and see it. Um, The fight in the forest is good. But aside from that, this is this is Michael Mann Michael Mann, not my this is not Michael Mann, I hasten to add. I love Michael Mann. This is Michael Bay at almost is, is Nadir, I think. It's just absolute worst. I hated Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. I hate what Michael Bay did to Transformers. Go and watch Bumblebee. It's rather good. Uh, Paul Risker. <laughs> You're number one.
2: Okay. So yeah, um, I mean I I I'm between insidious to oh, um, say sinister two i mean <laughs> no completely different films uh both i i mean i'd probably go with sinister two because it is just awful uh, i don't even know where to begin some of it is just preposterous Um, i mean isn't there that scene on the videotape where they've gone hung over the water and like a crocodile or something's leaping out and biting their heads off one by one i mean it's just i mean it's just really bad uh the problem is it had the making of a potential trilogy if you structure it right but for some reason uh the writer got you know got hooked on the kind of detective character, the police officer in the first film. And he felt like, hey, we've got to give him more screen time, so let's give him the sequel. And the sequel is, in comparison to Sinister, is utterly appalling. It's uh, The first Sinister is scary. It puts you on the edge of your seat. It kind of plays on on your mind after you've kind of uh, left the cinema. Uh, the second one is just so bland, it's, it just doesn't do anything, you almost just want to forget it, you can't find it scary because it's just such bad storytelling, but it's an example of how they fall in love with these characters, who actually, the reason they're a supporting character in the first film is because they're, they're only meant to be a supporting character, he's meant to be in Ethan Hawke's shadow, um, but like I say, it's... I put it there because it should have been a bridge to potentially a really interesting trilogy, and it just completely kind of shot it dead. It just shut the entire thing down. And it's as much as I love Sinister, I just never want to see Sinister 2 again. Um, I'm sure when I die that is one of the films I will be forced to watch over and a over again for that's eternity a grim place to leave, to that's honest. going to be my kind of um, punishment
1: wow Pete what's your number one or least, um, least well, you know what I mean
0: this is my number one uh, A and my number one B I suppose because um, if we're going on the parameters of what was the most disappointing sequel for you I'm going to take you guys back I'm going to take you guys back to a distant year, the years 1999, I'm just 15 years of age and literally the best film that could ever have been released was released that year in the form of The Matrix which at the time as a guy who had a sort of burgeoning interest in philosophy philosophy and then also action cinema this was like a a cinematic wet dream made real Uh, what we got was bullet time we got great you know Hong Kong inspired gunplay we got fist fights we got slow motion we got get up Trinity we got the glitch in the matrix something's changed like all this shit blew my mind when I was 15 I remember walking out of the cinema and seeing things in the world differently you know the the end sequence. Where it's like picking up the telephone, and then the kind of uh, what was the music that plays out the Matrix? Club to death. It's uh... Oh, Rob Zombie. Is that what Rob it is? Rob Zombie plays out the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think. Oh, oh, Rage. Is it Rage that plays it out?
1: Rage. Against I think the it might be yeah, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, yeah the machine maybe it, maybe it, it was. Yeah.
0: And at 15 years of age, as well, that was absolutely my jam. So amazing. And then we jump forward four years, and we get the the one two punch of Reloaded and Revolutions in the second of those two films. So the conclusion of the trilogy is set to be released on my birthday which would make me age 20 so five years uh into the future in terms of my my aging process anyway at that point and like reloaded starts with this part about eating a cake do you remember the part i'm talking about with monica it's bellucci so weird, where it's so like creepy. such a creepy oh scene. when the cake and that's and 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 you know drum roll played that's uh, soft determinism or whatever and it's just like oh god even at that age I understood that the philosophy had just fucking jumped the shark already like in the opening sequences of that movie and then we get two films of kind of re- repetitive bloated increasingly dumb increasingly hackneyed stuff that's just kind of pulling around the entrails of the first film and just you know playing with what was a real like landmark movie in terms of production in terms of world building in terms of just pure spectacle and yeah there's spectacular stuff in the second and third film there is there's stuff that on a technical level is still impressive but it just felt like such a crass kind of cash-in and 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 sort of usury on the part of the the people who were responsible and that's the wachowskis and you know the wachowskis at this point have done really good stuff interesting stuff weird stuff stuff i don't really care about and i'm you know the world is a richer place for them but reloaded and revolutions just really upset me at that at that age and and my 20th birthday could have been so much better if they hadn't (laughs) done what they did um Paul, what's your number Uh, one? Starship Troopers
1: 2, colon Hero of the Federation. Does anyone remember? Has anyone actually seen this or remember it? Because this is an appalling film. Absolutely appalling. It's one of the most boring films I can recall ever watching. The CGI is atrocious. The acting is atrocious. The script is atrocious. Um, And considering the scale of the first Starship Troopers film, this is kind of all set in an abandoned... I think it starts in an outpost and then goes into a cave. It's all at at night to try and master bad CGI. Um, It's just so, so, so boring so bad and just I can't believe this is a sequel to Star Trek (laughs) Troopers and what makes me sad as I was saying off air before to you Paul I think is that this is directed by otherwise one of my favorite people that works in films this is directed by special effects legend Phil Tippett um, which really really makes me sad because he's done such good work on (laughs) Robocop Star Wars I mean you name it Phil Tippett's done it like he's an incredible incredible visual artist but a, a, a director on the basis of this he is absolutely not um if you haven't seen it then it's it's i would say it's almost worth it just it's you might not get through it but it is so bad it's so laughably long-winded just boring badly acted i don't get it like and the third one's better than this one and that's saying something and starship jupiter 3 is a bad film but this is absolutely i sat there watching it thinking this is just a disaster
0: on on every level it just does not work um but but then Paul, isn't this whole list a sort of like Rorschach? test or something like that where you can look at it in a different way you can get something else and what you can get is from like that one that you've put at number one for example go and watch starship troopers <laughs> yeah. go and watch the first matrix movie you know go and watch the original that left us so disappointed when it was ruined later on down the line i think that's the the maybe the positive yeah, takeaway from yeah. this we'll end on, fundamentally end on a negative one for sure definitely um, and that pretty much
1: brings us to the end of the show. I would do credits, but way over time, so we're not going to do credits this week. There we've said it. Um, so, yeah, if you've enjoyed the show, then let us know. Give us um, give us a review uh, if you would like to. Uh, drop us some comments on the social media. Email us on strangersinnercinema at gmail.com or our social media is strangersinacinema or, stri- or at Strangers cinema on Twitter. Um, thanks for coming on again, Paul. It's been great having you, Pete. It's always a pleasure. Um, and we'll see everyone. Well, here we well we'll be back. We'll be back next time. Uh, thanks for listening. Shut
0: up and sit down.